The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. Our guest today is someone we've had on the show a couple of times, and I'm very excited to say that she's helping us uh, celebrate our 250th episode of Go Green Radio. Big milestone for us on this end. Osprey Oriel Lake is a good friend of our show. She's the co-founder and executive director of the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network, or We Can for short. And she was in Paris for the big international climate talks back in December. And I'm thrilled to have her on to share with us um, what she saw, what she heard, and most importantly, what she did. So Osprey, thanks so much for being on Go Green Radio. We're glad to have you back on the show. Well, thanks so much for having me on your show, and congratulations on your 250th show. You've done great work, and I'm, I'm really honored to be here. Thank you, Osprey. Well, before we dive into the details of the work that you did in Paris, I have to ask this question, because you were there, and these climate talks were taking place very soon after that terrible terrorist attack in Paris. What was it like to be there, what, and, and did you have any concern about your safety while you were there? Well, no, it's a really good question. You know, it was very interesting because um, myself, along with all the civil society organizations that, you know, had been planning all year to attend, had to suddenly regroup and consider, you know, who's going, who's not going, um, you know, the new conditions, understandably, that the French government had uh, set out as regulations because of the terrorist attacks and what was going to be allowed by civil society and not in terms of demonstrations and marches and gatherings. Um, and then, of course, the, the safety concerns, as you say. And, um, it, you know, I know for us in terms of our organization, I think a lot of others as well, there was a lot of internal dialogue about the fact that right now, because of climate change being so urgent, it is its own form of violence against the earth and violence against communities that are suffering on the front lines. And so, you know, this is a time that was worth a risk, you know? So mm-hmm. there's definitely a concern, but like, no, we need to be there. We have to be there. This is so important. There was heightened security everywhere, as you can imagine. And, you know, we were really respecting, of course, the French government's concerns um, after such an attack. Um, but just to give one quick story, um, you know, the, the day before um, the United Nations uh, climate talks began, you know, for months and months and months and months, there was huge plans to do a big march in the streets of Paris as civil society making a demonstration about our demands and really wanting there to be ambitious goals by governments. And, of course, that was um, canceled by the French government because of security reasons. And so there was just an enormous amount of solidarity and creativity as a lot of the activists got together and said, you know, what we're going to do is a human chain, you know, in the same route that the march would have happened. We're just going to stand on the side of the road with our signs and it won't be a march. And that was a very powerful day because people went out on the streets and people were concerned. You know, people were, you know, nervous. We were nervous. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, as this, this demonstration started, you could feel the energy changing and people taking back the streets, feeling more and more empowered and, 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 and safer. And uh, it, was, it was quite a moment to say yes, you know, watching, you know, Parisians take their streets back, supported by international um, uh, allies, and it, it was really quite something. So, um, you know, it changed over the course of, of the two weeks. That's really cool. Um, I can imagine what a powerful moment that must have been. 
you know, for those of us who were doing our best to follow what was going on, um, even still, you know, we may not have a great grasp of what was actually accomplished. So help us understand some of what the COP21 climate agreement entails. I mean, what was actually accomplished? Yeah, and it, it is. It's something you, we could unpack and discuss for a very long time. You know, it's been a, a, a an agreement that has been worked on for for years by governments. And um, you know, I love this quote by George Monbiot. I think is how you say his name. He's uh, writes for the Guardian, mm-hmm. and uh, he wrote by comparison to what it could have been, meaning the agreement. It's a miracle. By comparison to what it should have been, it's a disaster. <laughs> and so, you know, I just thought, wow, exactly, very interesting commentary. And, you know, basically in Paris, world governments from 195 nations signed on to, you know, really an unprecedented global climate agreement. And so, you know, at least, um, you know, the assessment from weekend is that we really wanted to acknowledge the groundbreaking effort which really does sense critical signals around the end of the fossil fuel era. But at the same time, you know, we have to be very critical about this agreement as well. So the countries have agreed to aim for a temperature rise, they say well below the two degree level, but they also included a 1.5 degree rise as an aspirational target. So that was a really big breakthrough because 1.5 degrees wasn't even on the table until this particular COP. And there was a special group within governments really um, working to push for this more ambitious goal. And so we think this was, you you know, very important. However, you know, thus far, there are not nearly at all sufficient carbon emission reduction commitments by governments legal and financial mechanisms and resources needed to really achieve this target. So, you know, we need to, you know, look at the rhetoric versus what's actually going on. So, um, you know, the chance um, that the Paris Agreement will keep average global warming below 1.5 degrees is, is actually very small. And when you get into the details of the text, it really reveals that up until 2020, when the Paris Agreement actually comes into play, countries are only required to reduce emissions according to what, what are voluntary pledges, in other words. They're not, you know, like these binding agreements. They're pledges. They're mm-hmm. called intended nationally determined commitments, which are INDCs. And when you really add all of these commitments together mm-hmm. um, of all the world governments and what they said, this would involve emitting enough carbon to put us on course for a 27 or 3.7 rise, uh, which is really climate catastrophe. Right. So, yeah. Go right ahead. No, go right ahead. Oh, okay. So, you know, this, this is why you see civil society and so many, you know, frontline communities and others saying, you know what, you know, we're glad you came together, but you know what, this, this is not enough because, this, you know, for all of us, that, that temperature rise is too much, certainly for frontline communities. It's excessive. Um, you know, and, and the best way, you know, we need to ensure that we don't go past this 1.5 degree and risk warming that will see many small island nations and coastal areas inundated by sea level rise, massive impacts on our ecosystems worldwide. Really, the way to avoid this is to keep fossil fuels in the ground. I mean, that's, you know, the simple thing. But when you look at the Paris Agreement, there's not a single mention of fossil fuels, oil, gas coal, or tar sands. Nowhere. So, wow. this is also problematic. So, you know, our goal at COP21, alongside all of our allies, was to advocate for climate justice, deep systemic change, and, you know, important strides are made. However, you know, it, the Paris Accord really fails to address the root causes of the climate crisis mm-hmm. and the structures of injustice that perpetuate it. You know, our, you know, again, you know, sort of this the way that our markets and the way that we have a market-based system around climate change is, is failing us. A couple mm-hmm. of other points. Um, the operative part of the text uh, fails to uphold human rights and indigenous rights. It's mentioned at the introductory part, but it's not legally binding. And so, you know, where is the human face of how we're being impacted? It's not in the agreement. Uh, 
Mm -hmm. Um, Gender equality is upheld in some of the sections of the agreement, but not nearly enough considering the impacts of climate change that are already experienced by women and also the leadership role and solutions that women are offering. You know, they're not in there in the text enough, and uh, governments are not held to leaving 80% of fossil fuel reserves in the ground, even though this is what scientists have told us point blank over and over again that we need to do. So, you know, we we really can't continue business as usual, nor promote, you know, the false solutions that are in the agreement, like carbon offsets, carbon trading, geoengineering, nuclear power. So these are kind of, you know, the solutions that they're coming up with, which we call, you know, false solutions. So, you know, in essence, it it was a very hard deal. And I think, you know, just to, to summarize, I think the good news coming out of Paris is that people around the world are really standing up boldly together and calling forth for the healthy, just future that we're envisioning together. And there was just a lot of solidarity from the climate justice movement. We pushed governments to act more ambitiously than they would have. And uh, that was very successful. Um, the What people's movements are doing was vibrantly displayed in Paris with actions on the streets, with tens of thousands of people, hundreds of events, assemblies, concert, educational workshops. I mean, it was incredible what was going on in all these different spaces that I think, you know, really shows the strength of um, the, the climate justice movement. We've seen, you know, uh, the results of pulling uh, um, Shell out of the Arctic over this last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've seen the closure of the um, going forward on the uh, XL Keystone pipeline. I mean, we're, we're seeing Exxon being taken to court. So I think this is the part we really need to look at is what are the people's movements doing and understand that that's really where a lot of the power and hope lies at this point. Absolutely. And, you know, you have and your organization um, – you have an assertion that women in particular are most negatively impacted by climate change and also that their voices are absolutely critical and central to devising solutions. Tell us why you believe that's so. Yeah, well, um, it's really interesting. When uh, I first started the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network, we were trying to say, you know, what would really be a place that we could have impact in, in the climate uh, crisis, but also looking at solutions. And we found that women are disproportionately impacted by climate change and environmental degradation, and that there's a clear link between poverty and who climate change impacts first and worst. And women make up the greatest percentage of the world's poor. So, you know, this is one of the reasons. And um, there's a lot of stress on many Indigenous women and women in developing countries um, who are experiencing results of climate change. And a lot of that is due to their direct reliance on nature and primary resources for their survival. So, you know, we have droughts and flooding and, you know, unpredictable temperatures. Um, These burdens really come upon, you know, these frontline communities, these frontline women who are trying to provide food and water and firewood for their families. And right now there's about 26 million people who have been displaced by climate change since 2010, 26 million people. Wow. 20 million of those are women. Wow. So that gives you a sense of the impact. And, you know, when we analyze root causes, women are experiencing climate change with a greater severity also because, quite frankly, of their basic rights being denied. So there's a lot of, you know, enforced gender inequality that reduces women's physical and economic mobility, their voice, their opportunity, their resources and regions. And so, you know, we also need to look at this as a rights issue as well. Um, but on the other hand... Um, what is really inspiring to me is that, you know, while women are suffering disproportionately, one of the untold stories of climate change is that they're really on the front lines of efforts to revision and heal our world and bring solutions. And in fact, you know, we make the case that you can't actually have climate solutions without women. And a lot of the women we work with around the world, they're always saying to us, you know, we're not victims, we're the solution. And, you know, they're absolutely right. You know, like 60 to 80 percent of household food production in developing countries is done by women. Absolutely. So we're talking about food security, food sovereignty. We're talking about women. 
That's um, such a great point. And actually, you know, we're going to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back, I want you to talk about some of the women that were with you in Paris and some of the events that you sponsored um, that allowed these women to tell their stories. I want you to share those with our listeners. So we're going to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back, there's so much more to talk about. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News, opinion, Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. In case you've just tuned in, let me catch you up. Today we're talking about the climate agreement that happened in Paris just uh, in December. And our guest today was right there in the thick of it. We have Osprey Oriel Lake. She's the co-founder and executive director of the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network, We Can for short. Um, and she's talking about um, her experience um, being there, being a part of this international gathering. Um, I want you to talk to us about some of the women who were with you there. Your organization is international, Osprey. So tell us about some of the women that you were with in Paris. Sure. Um, we have. We are very fortunate to be able to bring a delegation with us and um, we uh, were able to work both inside the COP um, doing uh, advocacy work because we were accredited to go inside the formal negotiations as well as doing outside events. And so our delegation sort of went in between those two different arenas of advocacy work. And we brought with us Nima Namandu, and she is our weekend coordinator from the DR Congo, an incredible woman who works with us on forest projects there, and Patricia Gualinga, who's a Kishwa woman from Seriaco, Ecuador, um, a very powerful indigenous woman who is presenting in many different spaces with a whole delegation she was with um, on their concept of what they call the living forest as an alternative to some other ways of protecting forests and how indigenous peoples have a worldview and are uh, caring for their forests and how we need to respect indigenous rights and allow them to tend to these forests that they've been living in harmoniously for millennia mm-hmm. and maybe learn mm-hmm. from them. I think that would be a good thing. Mm-hmm. We had Casey Kampornik from uh, the Ponca Nation, an incredible elder who uh, uh, brought much knowledge, uh, again, from indigenous peoples who really wanted to show frontline communities, indigenous knowledge, and, and other ways of viewing how we can live with the earth at this time. We brought Angelina Galateva, 
uh, who is the founder of 100% Renewable Energy Institute, we wanted to also really highlight how we can move to 100% renewables now. And there's so many false notions thinking, you know, oh, the sun's not shining in my state or, you know, in our region, you can't have solar and it won't work. And, you know, really bringing someone who can speak to these false notions about uh, renewable energy and that we can move to 100% renewable energy and we don't need to have transition fuels like um, natural gas. And Mm -hmm. we wanted someone who was an expert who could speak on all of our panels and to the press about this. Mm -hmm. Um, And we were also there with um, uh, myself and our communications coordinator, an incredible young one, the young woman, Emily Arison, who just did a terrific job on the ground. And then, you know, a host of other women that we are a part of because um, inside of the United Nations, there's different constituencies and there has been a formal constituency called the Women and Gender Constituency. Mm-hmm. And uh, we advocate alongside them and work for, you know, the things that we're interested in, making sure there's gender equality in the agreement, fighting for Indigenous rights, you know, these things that we hold as values that, that need to be part of these international policies. And... Um, so there's, you know, just many, many, many women that we ally with um, in this work. And so it was very exciting to be with them and to be able to be in a lot of different spaces, uh, sharing their stories and, and their strategies. Mm-hmm. Now, you had a, a very important event. One of your main events um, in Paris was called Women Leading Solutions on the Frontline of Climate Change. Give our listeners a, a really good overview, a detailed overview of the speakers and the topics that were included in this event. I know that you know, there were some amazing and inspirational stories shared. Give us, you know, help us to, to envision that and give us some of the great stories that you remember. Yeah, it's just, it was a wonderful event. Um, it was uh, an extraordinary gathering with worldwide women leaders, and they were there to really uh, speak out against environmental and social injustice, and they were there to draw attention to the root causes of the climate crisis, you know, because we need to keep understanding that while we have to deal with the immediate urgent issues, we also need to, again, you know, get to the root so that we can really change the circumstance that we're in. And they were there to present many different ideas and visions and strategies um, that they're working on to shape, you know, different world that is also equitable as well as healthy. Um, and um, I want to speak, share some about this, but a concept that I think is really important in terms of women and their solutions is, you know, as we were speaking earlier, you know, how much women um, make a huge difference around food security and food sovereignty. It's also true on water programs. So many UN studies show if you don't have women engaged in these water programs, they simply don't work because women mm-hmm. are the ones who are collecting the water and hold the local water knowledge in developing countries. Um, when we look to, you know, more like the global north, 80% of the purchasing power in North America is decided by women. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when we're talking about demanding clean energy and tackling overconsumption, we are addressing that audience. Um, I think the other really key point is that, uh, you know, there's a, a clear link between the climate crisis, our current economic model, and the ongoing exploitation and disempowerment of women. And we see women getting at these systemic problems by advocating for and implementing models of collective ownership of their seeds, their plants, their forests, working to localize their uh, uh, economies. And, you know, we see groups like Solar Sister organizing, providing solar light to local businesses for women in rural regions of Africa, women constructing wind-resistant housing in Bangladesh. You know, they're showing these other plans. And I think the central point is that the women are modeling small-scale solutions that have large impacts. And a lot of times mm-hmm. this gets overlooked because we see these, you know, these problems are so gigantic. We see that it has to be these, you know, large-scale problems that, are um, addressed in terms of these sweeping top-down initiatives, mm-hmm. but it's actually precisely the centralized, monopolized, sort of profit-driven processes of our current industrial system, our energy grid and food production networks that are actually facilitating this crisis further. So it's actually the reclamation of power at the local level and the restructuring of systems of production towards circular economies and locally tailored solutions that's needed. And what's amazing is women are really central to this process. 
Mm-hmm. They have the most powerful actors at the localized knowledge level. They have the biggest social capital necessary to create this change. So, you know, this is something that we were really looking at um, in our event, as well as the fact that women are bringing something very extraordinary to the, the conversation as well, which is our emotional and spiritual intelligence. And I don't think we can overlook that. And, you know, I've seen so many international forums where some of the most impactful work has been women conveying, you know, our deep and fierce love for our children, mm-hmm. their future, our homelands, and, and I think this is important. But let me get to some of the women. I just wanted to kind of create a context of, of what we were really addressing on this special day. It sure. was um, in downtown Paris. It was, um, you know, we were filled over capacity. We had lots of press. We were thrilled that... Uh, there, the newspaper Le Monde uh, picked up on the story, which is equivalent to like the New York Times here in the U.S. Um, the event started with uh, Josephina Skirk. She's the vice president of the Sami Parliament of Sweden, and we welcome. We offered her to come and give a traditional Sami welcoming on the behalf of Indigenous peoples of Europe. It's something we love to do wherever we are is to really honor the Indigenous people and invite one of their leaders to to do a welcoming. And she gave a beautiful talk about how we're all bound to each other and bound to nature and how we have to really create this weave together as, um, as seeing Mother Earth as a family member and how nature is screaming to us now, calling out to us to help. And it's just a very a beautiful opening um, that she spoke to us. And uh, we had Candy Mossett there from the Indigenous Environmental Network um, who opened up a panel with all frontline women who are facing impacts of climate change most directly. And she talked about um, how we need to live in balance uh, with nature and how women are often leading this movement and how they've always played traditionally in Indigenous cultures a central role in the balance of life and livelihoods. Um, then we also, going back to Josefina, something she also told us, which was really startling, she explained that a two-degree temperature rise increase in most regions of the world would result in an eight-degree rise in the far north where she is. Wow. And that was, like, really surprising, yeah. And what mm. would that mean for her traditional way of life and, um, you know, her people? And obviously that's, that's quite devastating. Sure. Um, Ariel, go ahead. No, I was just saying, sure. I mean, an eight degree temperature disruption, you know, I mean, that that could cover every system that they have, energy, water, food, all of that. Absolutely. You're talking about basically the annihilation of the people. You know, this is why earlier when we're saying, you know, civil society, including our organizations are just saying, no, this agreement's not good enough it's because we're looking at these communities and seeing it's a death sentence, you know, not to mm-hmm. be overdramatic. It is a death sentence. Mm-hmm. So, no, people are fighting for their lives. Absolutely. Yeah. Go ahead. You had others that so, you wanted to mention. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Eric Derringer, uh from the Athabasca Chippewa First Nations in uh, Alberta, uh, working on incredible issues around the tar sands there. Um, she, she gave a really beautiful commentary about, um, you know, the intersectionality of movements right now and how it's really imperative that the environmental movement and the indigenous rights movement and other rights movements work together now for a common goal, and um, I think that was really important to, to, to see how we need to unite together and not be in our separate silos to really mm-hmm. confront such a big issue like climate change. Um, so Misa Hussein was there. She's from the Maldives Islands. The Maldives Islands are the lowest geographical point on the earth, right. and she was talking about how as mothers, as women, as sisters, we can't afford to watch our children be killed by climate change. Again, really talking about the life and death consequences and, you know, how we need to make governments, um, you know, really be responsible and accountable for their actions. Um, and other Indigenous women talking about protecting their territories. We are very fortunate to have uh, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, UNFCCC, actually sent one of their leaders from the secretariat there uh, who specializes in um, gender equality and women's empowerment, Flora Newman, and she shared words of support and encouragement with all of the women leaders. And that was important so that, you know, we linked the inside negotiations with the frontline communities and grassroots women um, who are, are um, doing so much advocacy and activist work. And so, you know, we wanted to make sure she heard our stories and brought them inside the COP, which was very important to put a face on climate change. 
I think um, that's fantastic. Yeah. And, and the fact that you you all had that ability to move inside and outside the COP um, is really remarkable and speaks high, so highly of, of your organization and what you've been able to accomplish and the attention that you've been able to garner. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we'll talk more about what happened in Paris. Uh, there were a couple of other events that I want to talk about when we come back. So don't go away, folks. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Tolvanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Tolvanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Our guest is Osprey Oriel Lake, the co-founder and executive director of the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network. And if you want to check out their website, I encourage you to do so because there's some great blog entries about the work that they did at COP21 in Paris. And you can check them out at wecaninternational.org. Um, you can also follow them at, on Twitter at wecan underscore I-N-T-L for We Can International. That's We Can underscore I-N-T-L. Um, you know, back to your work in Paris, Osprey, um, you had a press conference and you also had uh, the International Rights of Nature Tribunal. And I'd love for you to tell us more about what happened with those two events. Sure. Um, uh, as we were speaking about um, before the break, um, we were uh, very fortunate to be uh, formally accredited um, organization, so we could work inside the negotiations as well as, you know, doing our work um, in, uh, with public events in downtown Paris. And we put together a uh, press conference that was really quite extraordinary. And actually, um, it, it, there's a link on our website to it so people can watch it themselves. But we had... Um, frontline women, uh, indigenous women, telling their stories about climate change. And our big focus, particularly at this press conference, was to bring the human face of climate change inside the COP for delegates and for the media to hear more of these stories. Because, um, yes, it's true that, you know, a lot of times we talk about climate change, we talk about environmental degradation, which we should. We should be talking about sea level rise. We should be talking about, you know, droughts and floods. But we also need to keep talking about, you know, how is this affecting, you know, 
the ecosystems of, of the plants and the animals, but also particularly humans as well. And so um, it was quite something, um, and I'll just give one story because it, it was really moving of um, Candy Mossett from the Indigenous Environmental Network, uh, you know, telling her story about the results of fracking in her community and, um, you know, just the, the kinds of uh, devastation that she's experienced and violence due to fracking in her community and the cancer rates and devastation to the land and how this is not a solution. Um, we had um, uh, uh, Patricia Gualinga from Ecuador talking about, you know, the impacts of oil extraction in the Amazon rainforest and, you know, how we need to protect the forest. And, you know, they talk not just also about, you know, the devastation due to oil extraction and, and climate change in their communities, but also their solutions. And it was beautiful to hear Patricia Galinga talk about uh, the living forest and this idea about how um, we, we need to understand that the forest is a living being. And really this idea that so many of the indigenous people brought forward that actually understanding nature as alive, um, uh, just that we would see nature as a family member is part of the solution and how modern day people really in the industrial world need to understand that our relationship with nature um, is in fact something that can change our worldview and change how we approach nature and it was just so compelling to hear this in so many different ways from a lot of our Indigenous allies to really plead almost with all of us to, to change how we view nature and that this would begin to heal um, our, our current circumstance. So it was just a very powerful um, press conference. Um, and then uh, it sort of leads into your other question around, you know, Speaking of nature and, and, and what is our relationship with nature, um, the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network uh, sits on the steering committee of the Global Alliance Rights of Nature. And uh, together with our other allies and other organizations who are part of this alliance, we hosted a um, tribunal in Paris. And it was um, in downtown Paris. Uh, it was a two-day event. And uh, the tribunal is really a, um, uh, a very powerful way that we can present new ideas about how we can, can live in nature. So as an example, um, the tribunal is a unique citizen-created initiative that relies on the mandate granted through it through the Universal Declaration of uh, the Rights of Mother Earth. And this is a document that came from the People's Conference of Climate Change and Rights of Mother Earth in 2010 that was held in uh, Cochabamba, Bolivia. And these tribunals get people... Um, the chance from all over the world, an opportunity to testify publicly as to the destruction of the earth and to propose recommendations for protection and restoration. Um, so it's, it's, you know, you know, people sort of, I don't really like the term a mock trial, but it is, you know, you, you actually set up a stage to look like a trial with judges and you have people presenting cases and you have prosecutors and you hear these different cases. And um, mm -hmm. I was uh, able to be one of the judges and listen to all the different cases for, for two days. Um, and the tribunal really provides a systemic alternative to environmental protection, which acknowledges that ecosystems have the right to exist, persist, maintain, and regenerate their vital cycles. And it's a very different way of looking at, you know, some of these other solutions that we're looking at um, that are really profit-different, driven, Mm -hmm. um, and models that are more provided by industrialized modern thinking. Um, and, so you know, or Osprey, it's really not uh, so far off. It's, you know, this is a, a, maybe a secular way to approach it, but not so far off what the Pope said in his encyclical on the environment when he talks about nature. And he even said, you know, to his you know, and actually it was addressed to all people of the world, not just Catholics, but he says, you know, if you believe that, you know, nature is part of creation, then it was intended to be there. We have no right to destroy it because um, it isn't, it isn't, you know, just for us. It has beauty and it has worth uh, just on its own, J just, you know, because it was created. So even people, you know, in, in religious circles are starting to look at this issue of nature 
um, and its majesty and dignity as its own entity, not just in service to human beings, you know, which I think is exciting to see, you know, different perspectives of society coming to some of the same um, goals and some of the same thinking, but from different backgrounds, some of it's scientific, some of it's religious, and some of it is, you know, an indigenous appreciation of nature. So, I love the fact that, um, you know, we're seeing all of this sort of come together at the same time. I, I completely agree. And um, it was very amazing because at the tribunal, we experienced that. All We had religious leaders there. We had all different kinds of communities there, all agreeing that we need to have a different understanding of nature. And so I I love that you said that because, um, we know, we had um, community leaders, legal authorities, expert witnesses, uh, religious experts, um, all providing incredible testimony, legal argument, scientific evidence of really the impacts and violations of rights of nature. You know, this idea that nature needs to be seen as a rights bring entity equal to human rights. There should be nature rights. Mm-hmm. Um, we had indigenous people, all different kinds of uh, communities. Um, you know, there was, I think, like 32 nationalities who, wow. who were presented there, presenting in seven different languages that were being translated. Um, wow. We presented cases, um, of course, on the impacts of climate change, the financialization of nature, this whole idea that nature should be in the marketplace, which mm-hmm. is not working clearly. Uh, we did genetically modified organisms, hydraulic fracking, we looked at mega dams. We also did cases of defenders of the land, defenders of Mother Earth, because so many people, especially in the global south, um, are being criminalized for you know um, you know nonviolent protesting of protecting their territories. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was quite extraordinary, and just you know so that people have an understanding. Just briefly, um, you know, the whole idea of rights of nature is that we that the current environmental protection laws we have even though they've achieved some, of course, important successes, mostly our modern legal systems are failing to prevent the increasing threats of climate change and environmental degradation. Or obviously we wouldn't be here if these systems are working, if these protection laws are working. So we're saying that to live really sustainably in harmony with Earth, we need to change, in essence, the very DNA of our legal frameworks so that they adhere to the natural laws of the Earth. And this is where rights of nature can play a really important role. So we start seeing our life-giving rivers, our forests, our mountains, not as property and moving ourselves out of a property-based system of law, but into one in which, you know, nature has a place that's respected and has rights. Mm -hmm. And this is the whole, you know, deep-seated idea behind these tribunals is to share, you know, what would it look like if our rights came from nature? What would it look like to have our legal systems understand that, you know, nature needs to thrive and survive and that anything that violates that um, is illegal. And mm-hmm. this is, this is the, the concept that we're working with. And um, it's also important to note that, um, you know, it's not just in theory. Uh, the country of Ecuador has rights of nature in its constitution. Bolivia has rights of nature laws. It's very challenging to actually implement them, but they have them there. In the United mm-hmm. States, there's been over 120 cases at the local level in local communities that have passed rights of nature laws to stop fracking in their community or, or other harms to communities. So it's something actually being practiced where local communities in the U.S. are creating their own local ordinances that state that, um, you know, they have the right to decide what's happening in their community that can mm-hmm. trump corporate law and state law and say, no, we have the right to protect our ecosystem where we live. So it's a very powerful idea that's growing and evolving, and these tribunals um, are one way that we're sharing this idea with the international community. And so it was just extraordinary to be on such a large stage. We've done other tribunals, but this is the largest place to, to, that we've shared this work, and um, it, it was um, quite something. We had, again, really terrific press. Uh, the venue we had, we had to turn away a thousand people because there was wow. no more seats in the venue. And so we're very excited about, you know, how this work um, is going forward. And we really feel that we must change the very nature of the laws. Um, this is the most important thing, you know, even though we did all these different cases that I mentioned, it's the system of law itself that we're trying to address. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the fossil fuel and other corporations and other actors 
and how they're really being found guilty when we're looking at violations against Mother Earth. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned Ecuador uh, in in your statement, and I wanted to to pivot to what you're going to be doing, some of the plans that you have coming up this year. I know that you have an upcoming delegation to Ecuador to stand in solidarity with the Sapara and the Quechua women of the Ecuadorian Amazon that are facing um, expanding oil extraction and other difficulties in their traditional territories. Talk to us about that work. That sounds very exciting. Yeah, yeah, um, it is. It's really important. Um, we have a delegation program at WeCan, and um, you know this has been requested by a lot of the indigenous and grassroots and frontline women that we work with. That we, you know, we do a lot of trainings online, but they want us to actually go to see them. And so, uh, uh, this International Women's uh, International Women's Day on March eighth, we're bringing a small delegation to Ecuador. Uh, we had already been planning it with um, our allies at Amazon Watch. We started planning it in Paris, but now it's even more important because very recently, in late January of this year, the government of Ecuador signed a contract with the Chinese corporation Andes Petroleum really handing over rights for oil exploration extraction in, in uh, two controversial areas in the Amazon um, that are in the Sapara and Quechua people's territories. Um, and it's, it's, you know, something we find very urgent. Um, it's very, very important. Um, one, first of all, and first and foremost for the indigenous people who live there, they have the rights to be there. They were not properly consulted. Um, and, you know, this is their way of life is to live in the, in the forest and, and to do as they have for millennia. Um, but the other component and one of the reasons we're very engaged in forest protection, um, as, as a key to our strategy is because, um, we know, as scientists tell us, you know, we can't live without these ecosystems. Our, uh, the Amazon rainforest is absolutely key to the weather patterns and rain and all of our, our uh, 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 weather patterns here in the United States. So, you know, we can't expect to live on this planet if we take down our forest. You know, there's four main right. forests, the Amazon rainforest, the boreal forest, the Indonesian forest, and the Congo Basin, and they're rapidly disappearing. And so, you know, when we see these um, oil companies going in, it's a big red flag. So uh, we're going to be taking a delegation there to help support the women um, in an action that they're going to be doing on International Women's Day. They're going to be um, having a march. They're going to be doing forums. They're going to be doing press conferences. And we're really going to be going there um, to stand in solidarity and call for cancellation of these new oil contracts from these two blocks one of them 79 and 83 in the Ecuadorian Amazon, and really demand action by the government of Ecuador to really heed the calls of the Sapra and Quechua people to halt this um, exploration extraction and also uh, to call for international action to expose the rights violations occurring in Ecuador. Um, there is, um, what's very important to know is that um, the Ecuadorian government claimed to have consulted the Sapara in, court, in accordance with Article 57 of their constitution, which requires free, prior, and informed consent. It's called mm-hmm. FPIC, which you, you need to consult with indigenous people before you go in their territories and do things. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually that uh, did, was not a proper consultation with the community. And so um, there's really a false claim that this happened. So we also see this as a rights violation of indigenous rights. Um, and also, because rights of nature is in the Constitution of Ecuador, there's also the case that it's also a violation of the rights of nature. So mm-hmm. we really want to highlight these rights abuses and violations and support the women um, who will be having this event in Puyo. Um, a lot of indigenous women will be coming out of the rainforest to protest and to um, tell their stories. And we want to do everything we can to support them. And also on our website, you can see that there's a link to a petition. Everyone's welcome to sign it to support um, them standing up and, and support them in their struggle. And also, again, to offer their solutions I was mentioning earlier. They have, you know, really beautiful ways of managing their forests. And in terms of climate change, we could do nothing better than to protect old growth forests in mm-hmm. terms of carbon sequestration and everything else. So, you know, it's really key that we support this action. Absolutely. I I wanted to also ask you about some training that you'll be conducting this year. And one of the areas in which you'll be doing it um, really 
caught my attention, the Middle East and the North Africa region. You know, that's an area of the world where women don't always have much of a say. There's also so much conflict going on in that area. So I'd love for you to tell us about what you'll be doing in that area and and what you expect the impact of your training to be. Sure. Um, We've been working in the Democratic Republic of Congo for a couple of years now, and we do both um, online trainings where we meet on uh, different online platforms, um, and then we also do on-the-ground work. And we found it be a really good combination um, so that, you know, like when we do the online trainings, we can bring in a lot of different international experts without, you know, flying everybody all over mm-hmm. and, 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 and collaborating with our on-the-ground um, allies. We work with a group called uh, Safeco, and uh, they have a base in Bukavo, which is in uh, the eastern part of DR Congo. And the focus we have there is working with uh, the protection of the Tombe rainforest. Um, and again, you know, speaking of forest, this is a forest project, and a lot of the training is around uh, forest conservation and, uh, you know, everything from planting trees in deforested areas to bringing in solar lights. The women aren't, you know, burning a lot of uh, wood at night for mm-hmm. light. And there is a lot around women's empowerment, you know, and really, especially with the pygmy women, these are the indigenous women of the region. And it's been really beautiful to see over this two-year period, you know, um, what we've learned from them of their traditional ecologic knowledge in terms of their forestry practices and really encouraging that, as well as them being excited that this international women's group is interested in them. You know, it's like a mutual empowerment of each other, of really seeing how we can support each other. It's been really quite something. And as you mentioned, you know, there's a lot of violence in the DR Congo and, and a lot of serious issues there. So I think that, you know, this has been a way for them to really gain a lot of power and leadership, um, we, uh, we've started several nurseries. The women are planting trees. They're really excited because these are trees that will give them their food and medicines and they don't need to go into the old growth forest so they can see, you know, what this means for their long-term survival. And also um, that we're acknowledging that they are the custodians of this forest that is important to the whole world. So this has also been very uplifting. So it's been really quite an extraordinary experience to work with them and, um, and have this exchange. And well, like, likewise, go ahead. You go right ahead. I was just going to switch over to the Middle East, North Africa region, you know, and again, you know, as you were mentioning, you know, I think one of the reasons that there's been a lot of interest in these trainings is because of the fact that we are focusing on women and the, uh, the fact that there's more severe impacts on women because of these climate change, environmental degradation no issues. No question. You know, and acknowledging that. Absolutely. Oh, I wish we had another hour to to go on. Osprey, we've reached the end of our show, unfortunately, but there's so much that we can glean from your website. Ways to support the organization are also on the website at wecaninternational.org. I'm glad that you joined us and so glad that our listeners joined us as well. We'll be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.